Hello, this is the Contractor Coffee Club podcast presented by EGIA, and I'm your host, Mark Madison. This podcast is hosted on egia.org slash podcast, where you can also find links to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, along with an archive of all previous episodes, a submission form for our listener Q&A, and the link to take the latest EGI snapshot survey. In today's episode, we're going to continue our discussion about sparking your success. Lucas, before we actually get started, should we begin with a snapshot survey question? Yeah, I, I love that idea, Mark. Let's do it. As you know, Mark, and as many, maybe many of our listeners know, uh, at EGIA, every month we survey our members on a topic that is um, kind of crucial to running a successful contracting business. It's a way of discovering the latest trends that are permeating the industry, uncovering kind of best practices that are at play right now in contracting companies everywhere, what's working and what's not working for that matter. And so last month in January, we surveyed people on digital branding. And so I just mm. wanted to do a, a quick one on this. Uh, Marcus, you know, I mean, most people who, who own and run contracting companies don't necessarily come up through marketing, right? They're, most of them have a background right. in contracting. So this is kind of one of those subjects that it's important, but it's also pretty understandable that not everybody is super, you know, up to date on the, the latest best practices. So specifically uh, on digital branding, we asked this question, does your company have a policy in place regarding digital asset protection? By which we mean logos, the pictures you're using on your website, the pictures you're using in your advertisement and your promotion and your marketing, um, advertising files in general, domain names, email lists, all these things that are very important, but also very easy to just sort of out of sight, out of mind. We found that just 21% of companies surveyed have a policy in place regarding digital asset protection. 47% do not. 32% uh, don't know their company's stance. So basically just one-fifth of companies have a policy in place. And it's something that seems very, I think, arcane to a lot of people because it is. it sounds very technical. Right. But it's very vital to, to any business, really, because you know having a formal policy in place ensures you're never going to lose access to domain names, like I said, passwords, online content, logo designs, which can cost not just time, but money and even customers. Um, do right. you have any thoughts on the, kind of on the, the subject? Well, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know, if you have a split with your developer, you know, your vendor partner, and they have access to your website, access to your social media accounts, uh, that's a kind of a scary thing. And, you know, divorce is always tough. Uh -huh. So they basically have, you know, access to your entitled, entire digital footprint from logos to promotions and so on. So once you fire that vendor, you need to be able to control that access with those assets, assets and cut off access from that vendor. And, you know, I'm not an attorney, but I play one on TV. But I mean, it seems to me this is, a, this is one of those questions that as much as we dislike contacting our attorneys because the, you know, the clock runs, uh, this might not be a bad one. Uh, I'm just curious, EGA's thoughts on this. And, and in terms of resources, uh, whom do we contact to, uh, to get answers to these questions? Yeah, absolutely. So EGIA, of course, um, our members have access to our core curriculum and to our contracting best practices library. And there's a whole subject um, for digital branding. There's a whole area of digital branding on the, the best practices library online where you can get videos, documents, uh, templates, step-by-step, how-to. Perfect. Uh, so you can learn how to do this. Because as you said, Mark, I mean, it's and it's not just, I mean, a, a vendor partner is a perfect example. But the other thing too, I mean, you just think about uh, if you have an employee 
um, running your, just as an example, running your social media accounts, right? Right. And then you fire him. A disgruntled employee with access to your social media can do a lot of damage very quickly. Right. Um, so it is important to, you know, this isn't, this isn't to be too doom and gloom. The point is, um, as I said, it's only about one-fifth of companies really have this, this idea, this process front of mind. Um, there's no better time to start than now. And there are resources out there. As I said, egia.org. Um, check out our best practices library if you're a member. There's, there's plenty of, um, of information to help you get started. I would say it is not as daunting, it's not as difficult as it sounds, um, but it is important to, to get started now. Well, I'd like to, the great thing about having so many members with the AGIA is I'd like to hear some of those members chime in about this, you know, offer some ideas and solutions and resources. So we're just posing the question. Yeah, right? absolutely. And, and also uh, another one as sort of on the subject, we do, EGIA does do these um, Ask the Experts conference calls every week, twice a week, actually. Um, so right. One of those spots where, by all means, any further questions that you're not seeing in the, uh, the contracting best practices library jump onto a uh, Ask the Experts conference call, you can register for them, egia.org slash events, um, and ask you know, any number of people on, on those calls uh, that are very abreast of this topic. The resources are scary. There's just so many. You know, if there's an issue, EGI has got an answer. There is. And Mark, I mean, you, speaking of sparking success, I mean, you have a website of your own. You know, you can imagine the, the horror if you lost access to it. Yeah, that's a scary thing. Yeah, it's, um, it's a great question. And certainly... Uh, it demands some answers, so thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, and actually, I should just also just mention, uh, EGI members, you, you have access now to this last month's report, um, the snapshot survey summary report on digital branding, that question, and about um, five or six others, all with detailed results, detailed uh, quotes about the subject, all that stuff. That's all available now in your EGIA.org dashboard, if you're a member. So anyway, Mark, go ahead. All right, well, this podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about attitude. Attitude determines our altitude. Zig Ziglar said that at a seminar I attended in 1993. He also said, every year, get a checkup from the neck up. I always loved Zig. I miss him. He was a friend of my publisher, and he was, the, he was a pioneer in this industry. For over 20 years, I've read the following quote in every seminar and workshop I've ever delivered. I've read it or had it read aloud over a thousand times, and it says it all. It's from Chuck Swindoll. The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think, say, or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It'll make or break a company, a church, or a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every single day regarding the attitude we'll embrace for that day. We cannot change the past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. The only thing we can do is play on the string we have, and that string is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I respond to it. So you see, I'm in charge of my attitude. I found there's two vital aspects of attitude to adopt. I first heard them from Earl Nightingale, one of my mentors, from his Lead the Field audio program. It really stuck. I made it my own. Expectancy and gratitude. A very successful client of mine once told me, hey, I expect to succeed. Once I set a goal, I go after it with everything I have. The other is an attitude of gratitude. When you combine these two qualities, they make a magical alchemy of abundance for you and yours. One of my favorite quotes is, work like your mother is watching. In the Disney basketball biopic, Glory Road, the coach of tiny Texas Western University, Don Haskins, is struggling with one of his star players. The kid isn't applying himself in the classroom. 
He's at his wit's end. Without this kid's rebounds and defense, they're simply not going to win. What to do? The next scene shows the boy's mother storming down the hall with a scowl on his face. She sits in the classroom to hold her son accountable. His grades improve. That was 1966. The team went on to win the national championship. It was the first year as a men's college basketball coach, which makes that accomplishment even more significant. Moreover, it was the first time in history that five African-Americans players started in a college game. What if you worked like your mother was watching? Your attitude and effort would surely improve. I remember how motivated I was in my youth to please my mother. Remember the 10 most powerful two-letter words in the English language is, if it's to be, it's up to me. Mom's not here. What if you don't feel like working? What if I'm in a lousy mood? What can I do to change that? Well, here's my top 10 ideas to change your attitude. And by the way, I've done them all, they work. Number one, hang around positive, upbeat people. Change your reference group. Birds of a feather really do flock together. You'll be the same person in five years except for two things, books and people, people and books. Number two, listen to an inspiring audio program. Kind of like this one, Lucas. Download a sales seminar, sermon, a motivational talk, and listen while you drive around. Podcasts are amazing now. I have all my books on Audible. It's, I kept having uh, millennials come up to me and say, you know, I don't want your CD. I want it on Audible. Do you have that? And after about 47 times, I finally surrendered and, and made that happen. Wait, millennials knew what a CD was, Mark? Uh, well, no. They just said, I don't have a CD player in my car. So, you know, it's like, oh. You know, I, I'm never too old to learn, and they're never too young to teach, right? That's what I have to remember about millennials. Number three, watch a 20-minute YouTube video uh, by a professional speaker each morning for 30 days. How about a TED Talk? Number four, read an inspirational book. I know I talk about this one a lot, but the books you don't read won't help. And people that don't read are no better off than those that don't know how. A client recently asked me for my top 10 most inspiring books. Without looking at my library, Here's the list I came up with. I've read all these books multiple times. The first one on the list changed my life in 1982. I found it in a garage sale for 50 cents. And I kept it in my service truck when I was a technician. It literally became my human relations Bible. How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I can't tell you how many people have told me that either attending one of his seminars or reading that book changed their life. It certainly changed mine. Number two, a classic, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. When, uh, when Hill wrote that book, he, uh, he actually told his publisher, I want the title to be uh, Use Your Noodle to Get the Boodle. And his publisher said, mm, no. So they changed it to Think and Grow Rich, and it made Hill a, a millionaire, but it also helped create a lot of millionaires. Number three is a classic written in 1927, Acres of Diamonds by Russell Conwell. You know, that book is a really simple concept. There's an acre of diamond in your backyard. You don't have to go around the country looking for it. You've got an acres of diamonds in your backyard. When I talk to contractors, I tell them the road to wealth is paved with service agreements. That's your acres of diamonds. Number four, Magnificent Obsession by Lloyd C. Douglas. I heard John Wooden speak in 1993, and I, when I asked him what his favorite book was, that was what he said. So I immediately went out and bought a copy, and after I read it, I wrote Freedom for Fear. It inspired me to write that book. I'm rereading it actually right now. Uh, it's, it's a tr tremendous book. It was written by a pastor in 1929. But he wrote The Robe and a bunch of other books that were all bestsellers. Number five, The Magic of Believing by Claude Bristol. There's a story about Phyllis Diller. She was a 
single mom with three kids and she was uh, cleaning an office building and somebody had thrown that book in the garbage. She picked it up and started reading it and she literally read it in one sitting. And she applied the insights in that book and she became one of the most famous comedians in history. The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt by Edmund Morris. And I've read about a dozen books on Roosevelt's life. He's one of my favorite, uh, favorite presidents. But this one won a Pulitzer. And I'm telling you, I have a couple copies of it. I've read it multiple times. It's like 600 pages, but I'll tell you what, he was an inspiring guy. Uh, on Writing by Stephen King. It's the only nonfiction book King wrote. I, I used, I've used the principles in that book to help me write my books. And it's, uh, the, the first part of it is his, his, his biopic, basically, the, you know, his writing process. And then the last third of the book is uh, book recommendations. Number eight, Broken Music by Sting. This is one of my favorite biographies. The only problem when I read a book like about a musician is I end up downloading their entire catalog on, uh, on iTunes. So the book doesn't cost me $20. It costs me $100. <laughs> uh, oh, well, right? Yeah, there's a lot of music to download by him, too. Oh, I know. It's crazy. So I've stopped reading uh, biographies of musicians because this costed me a fortune. Uh, number nine, How to Sell Anything to Anybody by Joe Girard. If you're in sales and who isn't, uh, this, book, this book changed the way I looked at the world. He, he talks about something interesting. He, he calls it the rule of 250. He said he was talking to a funeral director and he said, how many people end up uh, attending a funeral? And the, the director said about 250. And then he talked to a wedding planner and he said, how many people typically come to a wedding? And the wedding planner said 250. So he came to the conclusion that everybody knows 250 people. So when you're starting in sales, the best thing you can do is contact your 250 reference group. And of course, last but not least, number 10 is freedom from fear. What kind of author would I be if I didn't at least mention one of my books? There's a reason it sold 100,000 copies. Number five, grab your journal and make a gratitude list. What are the five things you're grateful for today? If, the, if that doesn't change your attitude, list five more. Here's what I discovered about doing that. There's no way I can feel sorry for myself or cynical while I'm making a gratitude list. It's impossible. It's like mutually exclusive activity. Number six, decide to be an optimist. Optimists live longer than pessimists do, and they have a better time along the way. So make a list of your wins. What's a win? That's something that, that's happened in your life that you're proud of. Your daughter comes home with a 4.0 GPA. Your son hits the winning shot in basketball. Uh, you just closed the largest sale in the history of the company. You made your sales plan for the year. You were a technician who generated more leads than anybody else. When something good happens, write it down. The palest ink is better than the strongest memory. Your past success will leverage your future success. It really, it really is true. Success breeds success. Number seven, we live in the greatest country in the world. We have so much to be thankful for. The poorest person in this country lives like a king compared to many third world countries. We need to be a little bit patriotic. Number eight, cut back on television. I canceled cable 10 years ago. It was one of the best things I ever did. Moreover, stop watching the news. You ever go on, you ever go on a vacation, Lucas, and you didn't read a newspaper or watch the news for seven or 10 days? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cut off from the internet too. And it felt fabulous, and it wasn't because you were in Hawaii. It was because you stopped listening to the bad news. I mean, maybe it was because you were in Hawaii, but, you know. Yeah, you can catch up on it, no problem. Ten days later, like, you, you can get caught up on the bad news. It's, you're not going to have missed it for the last week.
Yeah, take an immediate break for 30 days. Here's what I promise you. You can get all the headlines from your friends. They'll tell you what's going on in the world. You don't have to work because everybody else is reading the news, right? So cut back on television, cut back on the news and find out and take a little test to see if it, it affects your attitude or not. Number nine, ask for help. Call a friend or mentor to talk it out. Be honest, be vulnerable. When I share my troubles, I cut them in half. I had a speaker friend call me one day and we started talking about the challenges of the business. And then near the end of the conversation, he said, you know, I don't ever have this conversation with anybody else. I said, well, yeah, it's kind of a unique situation, right? I'm a, I'm a firm believer, if you're a contractor, you need to find another contractor in your industry, uh, in your region, that's a friendly competitor, somebody you can talk to. And of course, the great thing about being an EGIA member is you have hundreds, if not thousands of contractors to talk to. I'm convinced that that's one of the things that allows us to navigate through because honestly, most of us just need a sounding board, someone to bounce something off. You can't talk to your employees. You can't talk to your wife, right? Who do you talk to? Number 10, listen to positive and upbeat music. As I write this, I'm listening to 99 songs from Mozart. I'm reading a book right now by Bill Bryson. And the guy's a genius. I think he's one of the smartest people on the planet. But when I'm reading books like that, because he's this historical wizard, he does all this amazing research. But when I'm reading books like that, I listen to Mozart while I'm reading. There's something about the, the rhythm and the beat of the music. It actually fosters creativity and enhances memory. Uh, Bach, Handel, Vivaldi, they all do the same. There's, some, there's a reason they play classical music in bookstores. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan once said, it's not my net worth, it's my self-worth. Courage isn't the absence of fear, it's a master of it. Negativity makes a person look at the land of milk and honey and see only calories and cholesterol. How bad can this day be? You or I are on this side of the grass. I met a gentleman uh, years ago, his name was Doug, he was 92. I said, Doug, how you doing? He said, I'm sold, I don't even buy green bananas anymore. <laughs> and I cracked up. And this guy did vaudeville. He was five foot nothing, about 100 pounds. He wore a beret. And I said, what else you got, Doug? He said, well, I'm so old. I remember when the Dead Sea was sick. So I thought, all right, I, I got to borrow that. And I've been, I've been using that ever since. And when somebody asks me how I'm doing, I always say the same thing. I'm fluctuating between fabulous and sensational. I just keep drifting back and forth, but I haven't had my coffee yet, so I expect it to get better. The other day, I was in uh, Pennsylvania, and I asked this woman, at a, at a Costco, I was doing a, I was doing some research for a contractor they, with a Costco Leads program. And I said to this woman, how are you today? She said, spectacular. And I thought, wow, I'm not spectacular. I got some work to do. So I've adopted that one too. That's my new, that's my new response. So here's my point, get to work. Your mother is watching. I know mine is from heaven. What are you willing to change? How can you improve your attitude? What if you wrote down five things you're grateful for before you went to bed tonight? I wonder what would happen. Here's a, here's a sampling of my gratitude list. Number one, my health. Number two, my family. Number three, my mind. Number four, my business. Number five, the opportunity to travel and meet people. Books, journaling, the opportunity to change. If you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. Maya Angelou said that. Your thoughts, Lucas. 
I, I, I agree. Um, what I'm wondering is, so have you noticed um, as, you know, now you're more, you're, you're kind of self-employed, you're mainly a speaker and a writer, but you have sort of decades of experience in the contracting industry as a contractor, as a salesperson. Had, could, did you notice a quantifiable difference kind of when like your attitude improved and your performance at work? Can you see a correlation between success and attitude in, you, in your personal kind of experience in the industry? Absolutely. I had a mentor tell me once about 20 years ago, he said, people buy you, Mark. And I said, huh, really? He said, go to work on your cash, knowledge, attitude, skills, and habits. And I realized, you know, so taking, breaking those down one at a time, specialized knowledge. How much do you know about your product or service? Can you define and describe the value of service agreements to customers? Can you dissect and, and lay out the differences between, you know, a repair and a replacement? And your passion attached to that, your attitude attached to that. You know, I tell contractors, look, you know, I don't, I don't care what brand you sell. If you don't have that brand in your house and your mother's house and your employee's house, then how can you get excited about selling what you sell? Going back to Zig Ziglar, what I remember listening to an audio program by him and he was selling pots and pans. And he was asked to help uh, one of his colleagues who was struggling. So he went over to his house and he noticed that the competition's pots and pans on the guy's stove. And Zig commented on it, and the guy started defending his position, and Zig said, look, I'm here to help you. I don't have to help you, but I'm going to try. He said, you have to believe in what you sell, and if you don't own what you sell, you can't transfer that belief to somebody else. And I really believe that. So if you want to improve your sales, go install what you sell and watch what happens. And I guess walking in with a, with a negative attitude does not exactly – ooze kind of self-belief and confidence and yeah i mean it doesn't it doesn't put somebody in a position to think oh this person loves what they do and believes in their in their company or their product right right and you know it's it's palpable you can literally feel it you know i can tell you to read books because i read two books a week and i have for 30 years i can, I can books have changed my life I mean, I'm a guy who had a solid year of junior college under his belt right i had a 3.0 in college blood alcohol level so, I mean, come on, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I don't have a formal education. I don't have a degree. I'm not a PhD. It was a strong year, though, Mark. It was a strong it year. It was a strong, it was a solid year. Yeah, 3.0. Yeah. No, it's, it's, so I have a passion for reading because it's changed my life. I can, always t I can also tell you that journaling will change your life. I, you know, when I'm teaching sales training, I, I talk to the audience. I said, look, the, the smartest thing you can do after every single call is to sit down, and draw a line down the center of the page. And on the left-hand side, write down, what did you do well? And on the right side of the page, write down what you could improve. It's a little debrief, a little autopsy. Now, an autopsy typically is when somebody dies, but if you didn't close the sale, you need to do the autopsy. If the sale went well and you closed it, you need to find out what that is too. Uh, you know, that's a simple discipline and, and a journal will allow you to do that. Uh, and also to capture ideas and insights and quotes. You know, I don't have to go very far into my journal to find a great quote. Yeah, that's great. Well, how much time do we have, Lucas? Should we dig in a little bit deeper or should we stop there? I think we got time for another segment. All right, very good. So well, this is one of my favorite, absolute favorite topics. And uh, we may end up going over here, but we can, I guess we can always stop if uh, we go too far here. But uh, when I was 14 years old, I had the privilege of 
of, a, of hearing a, a former state high school basketball championship coach come and speak at our at our high school. And when everyone else was shooting spitwads and flirting with girls, I'm trying to listen to this guy. I was shushing everybody. And this guy spoke for 45 minutes, and it literally resonated with me. So I approached him afterwards, and I said, is there more? And he said, absolutely. And he had me this brochure, Action for Excellence, $45, Super Bowl weekend, Seattle University, 1973. And so I went home that night, and I said to my mother, I've got to go to this seminar. And she said, seminar? You're 14. What are you going to a seminar for? And I said, well, <laughs> this guy's amazing. I, I have to have more information. So I asked her years later, I said, Mom, why in the world did you drive me down to Seattle University and sign a check for $45? She said, Mark, you were so passionate, I couldn't say no. So I went to the seminar. I took 50 pages of notes. I learned how to set goals. I learned how to visualize. I learned about self-esteem and self-worth. And I went from scrub to star on the basketball team in 30 days. Uh, and then I came home spring quarter with a 1.8 GPA, a solid 1.8. But, you know, a 1-8 nonetheless. And my father looked at my report card and said, let me tell you a story. He said, my senior year in high school, the head football coach of Ohio State, Carol Widows, came to my high school to offer me a full ride as a tight end. And that was a significant thing because they had just won the national championship the year before. And then he said, Bob, let's see your transcript. So I ran to the office. I got him. I ran back. I handed it to Coach Widows. And he said, I'm sorry, son. Looking at your grades, I guess you'll have to go to Bowling Green. You don't have the grades for Ohio State. And then my father paused for effect. I got the message. And then I said, well, what kind of GPA do I need? He said, there's not a coach in the country that won't look at you without a 3.2. So I sat down and I wrote out on a, a goal on a three by five card. It said, I enjoy a 3.2 GPA. I love homework. That's all it said. And then something magical happened. I started noticing who the smart kids were. And I followed one of them into the library because, you know, I'd never been in there before. And uh, I saw my friend Katie and I said, Katie, what's up? And I yelled it across the room and the librarian went, shh. So I snuck over to the table and I said, what? and here's seven of the smartest girls in the school and one guy. And the guy was the Valor Victorian of the school. So I said, what are you guys doing? And they said, uh, well, this is like a, you know, like a book study from the class. She goes, you're in our contemporary world problem class, sit down. So I did. And then afterwards I walked Katie to her locker and I noticed something. She took the books out of the locker. I thought lockers were for storage, you know, keep them safe. She'd have them the next day. And then she taught me how to organize my stuff. And, and then she said, here's a thought, Mark. When you get an assignment, do it that night. And I went, huh, I thought those were for Sunday night. And an amazing thing happened. I had a 3-2 the next quarter and then a 3-8 the rest of the time through high school and college. And I realized all I'd really done was set a single goal. Now, you may never have heard of Earl Nightingale. He died in 1989, but he's still one of my mentors. He was a pioneer in the field of nonfiction audio. He recorded something called The Strangest Secret in the World. All you have to do to get that is just Google it and, and download it. It's amazing. I've listened to it probably 50 or 100 times. I have the transcript. And it can, if you let it, change your life. Mark Victor Hansen, the author of Chicken Soup for the Soul, is purported to have listened to it 500 times. So here's an excerpt submitted for your approval. I want you to write on a card. 
what it is you want more than anything else. It may be more money. Perhaps you'd like to double your income or make a significant amount of money. It may be a beautiful home. It may be success at your job or a particular position in life. It could be a more harmonious family. Each of us wants something. Write down on your card specifically what it is you want. Make sure it's a single goal, clearly defined. You needn't show it to anyone, but carry it with you so you can look at it several times a day. Think about it in a cheerful, relaxed, positive way each morning when you get up, and immediately you have something to work for, something to get out of bed for, something to live for. Look at it every chance you get during the day and just before going to bed at night. And as you look at it, remember, you must become what you think about. And since you're thinking about your goal, you'll realize that soon it'll be yours. In fact, it's really yours the moment you write it down and begin to think about it. Look at the abundance all around you as you go about your daily business. You have a right to this abundance. As much as right as any living creature, it's yours for the asking. The moment you decide on a goal to work towards, you're immediately a successful person. You're in that rare and successful category of people who know where they're going. Out of about every 100 people, you belong to the top five. Don't concern yourself too much with how you can achieve the goal. Leave that completely up to a power greater than yourself. All you have to know is where you're going. The answers will come of their own accord. You see, goals, in my opinion, add years to our life and life to our years. It gives our life meaning and purpose. 68% of American men in this country are dead within 18 to 24 months of retirement. How did I come to that conclusion? Well, when I was 25 years old, I was fixing an ice machine at the Horizon House in Seattle. Now, if grandma's at the Horizon House, she got some coin, okay? Nice place. The lunch bell rings, and 35 women are chasing George, the only guy in the place. And I, I was literally, you know, I was watching these women say, you, George, sit with me. And I'm thinking, wow, God has a sense of humor. If a guy lives long enough, the girls chase you. And I kind of laughed at myself, and then it hit me. Oh, my goodness. Where's the other 34 dudes? Dead. Dead dudes. How come 35 women and George? And so for the next five years, I read everything on longevity. I started asking questions. And this is what I concluded. Women do three things that most people know and one thing that most people don't consider. Number one, women exercise. Go to any mall, go to the beach, look around. Women walk in packs and they do walk and talks, right? So they're exercising and men don't. Number two, women talk about real stuff. I was driving home with a, from a party with my wife one night, and she starts telling me about these things this woman told her, like intimate, personal things. And I said, well, you've known this woman a while. She said, no, we just met tonight. I said, but you talked to her for a while. She goes, no, five minutes. I said, I know guys 20 years I don't know this much. You know what she said? Oh, she needed to talk. I mean, come on. My friend Steve and I were working out of the club one day, and I was spotting him on the bench, and he said, I'm getting a divorce. I said, bummer, dude. That was it. That was the end of our conversation. I made the mistake of asking my wife or telling my wife that night. She said, well, what happened? Was, was he having an affair? Was she cheating on him? She asked me all these questions. I, said, I don't know the answer to any of those questions, but go ahead and write them down, and I'll put them in my gym bag, and I'll ask Steve the next time I go. Not, right? If he wanted to tell me more, he would have, right? So guys don't talk about real stuff. And number three, watch the way women eat. Women eat smarter than men do. Smaller portions, better quality, 
And those three things, if we just do those three things, we're going to live longer. But the fourth piece, Lucas, and this was the one that really grabbed my attention. If I am what I do when I don't, I'm not. You see, if I am what I do, my job, when I don't work, I'm not worthy. When men retire, we leave the things that mean the most to us. Most men get their self-worth and their self-esteem from their work. Women don't. Women get their self-esteem and self-worth from a balanced life and motherhood and grandmotherhood and great-grandmotherhood. I was in the airport one day and I was watching this woman struggle with a newborn and a, and a toddler and she was like, she was overwhelmed. And this, this woman, probably in her 70s, came up and said, honey, let me help. And she literally reaches out and the woman hands her her baby and she goes, oh, we need to change a diaper. Where's the diaper bag? And she starts changing this little kid's diaper. And I'm thinking, here's a complete stranger and this woman handed her her baby. Now, I've changed a lot of diapers, and I'm a nice guy, but if I'd have walked up to her and said, honey, let me have that baby, she'd have said, stranger danger, no security, right? But women have this understanding. And see, motherhood and grandmotherhood changes the way women look at their meaning and their life. And I think it's the reason women live between five and ten years longer than men do. So it's one of those things that when you really look at it and look at it hard, it really is true. Goals add years to your life and life to your years. A friend of mine sent me a text yesterday, and he's, he's pushing 70. He's probably 69. He has a successful business. And I said, how you doing, buddy? And he said, I want to retire. And so I sent him a, a text back. And I said, retire to what? I want to see your bucket list. There's five questions. What do you want to have? What do you want to see? What do you want to do? What do you want to be? What do you want to share? I want 10 answers to each of those five questions. You see, I care about this guy. His name is Bob, and he's a dear friend. And I want him to add years to his life and life to his years. And I'll end this, this segment with uh, one of my favorite stories from John F. Kennedy. Uh, a wise old farmer asked his 14-year-old grandson to help him with a long overdue project to remove the boards from a six-foot-high fence that needed a repair one Saturday morning. He laid out exactly what he wanted done and why it was so important, as any good leader would. The how was up to the grandson. He checked back on his grandson an hour later, only to find the young man standing there wearing his favorite cowboy hat, staring at the imposing task. Not a single board had been removed. What's wrong, Johnny? The grandfather asked. Looking down at his cowboy boots in shame, he replied, well, this fence is so high and it's going to take a lot of work and time for me to get all those boards down. I'm having a hard time getting started tipping his favorite hat back on his young head in frustration. With that, the farmer grabbed his grandson's cowboy hat and threw it over the fence. Hey, why'd you do that? That's my favorite hat. Johnny, as I told your father when he was your age, in order to get your hat back, you're going to have to take down a few boards. Once you get going, you might find you can take down a few more. At that point, you may decide to stop with the day, and that's okay. You can come back tomorrow and throw your hat over the fence again and take a few more boards down. Eventually, before you know it, the job is done. You see, wanting what we have, wanting the goals isn't enough. We need to take action. So, Lucas, yes. I think that's it for the day. We'll pick up where we left off next time. Yeah, yeah. I um, First, I wanted to say I, I really like this, this sort of 
like jumps back to the uh, the attitude discussion, even though it was from this last segment. But when you said, uh, "Why did you write the check to your mom?" and 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 you said, "She said you were so passionate, I couldn't say no." That right. That feels like that's that's a strong takeaway right there, right? Yeah, I think so. Any, so if we're not passionate, way. yeah, go right? ahead. If we're not passionate, then guess what? We're not going to get what we want. Yeah, and 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 at the same time, that passion rubs off, right? Like it's hard for somebody else to see how excited you are, how passionate you are. Um, I mean, that basically that was that was sales. That was the introduction to sales, right there, Mark. You were you were trying to make the sale, and you got the check. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then and how does how does again um, kind of thinking about your your history and as like a contractor, how did you incorporate goal setting into that? You were saying kind of even just set a single goal is is a start. Well, I, when I made the transition from being a technician to a salesperson, it started with a three by five card. I wrote on it, sales is fun and easy for me. And I put it on the dashboard of my service truck. And I kid you not, three weeks later, after seeing that, you know, hundreds of times, I changed a five ton compressor on a building in downtown Seattle. It was only four years old, the equipment. There were 10 units up there. And the guy was complaining about the cost of the repair. And I said, well, it seems like a shame. Only the good die young. And he said, excuse me? I said, well, this compressor, I said, it never should have died. I said, but uh, you hadn't done a lick of maintenance. I said, the filters were, you know, collapsed. The belts were broken. The condenser was plugged full of crud. I said, but, the, you know, the real, the real challenge is you got nine other units just like it all waiting to die. I said, you better get ready to spend some money because, you know, it's, all, it's coming. And he said, well, what do you suggest? And I said, look, it's your building. You do what you want. But if this is my mother's building, what I tell her is, mom, you got to let me, you know, clean the coils, change the filters, replace the belts. Whatever it costs for me to do that is going to be more than made up in lowering your operating costs and extend your equipment's useful life. And then he said something that changed my life. He said, I'll take it. I said, I'm sorry, what is it you're going to take? He said, whatever it is you're selling. I said, no, 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 I'm not in sales. He said, the heck you're not, write it up. Now, Lucas, I didn't know what it was, but he wanted it up. Okay. I it. I, well, he, so I went back to the shop to talk to the sales guy. And of course, he wasn't around. We never know where they are. So I went to the service manager's office. Best boss I ever had. His name was Carl. And he was on vacation. Now what? I have the dilemma. I made a promise to a customer. So I went through the files, found five buildings similar in size and scope. I added it up, divided by five, came up with a number, seemed a little low. So I added 50%. I figured I was going to get fired. It was on a high margin project. I typed it up on an IBM Selectric typewriter and I handed it to the guy the next day and he signed it without even looking at the price. And that's when I realized I've just become a salesperson. And it started with a simple goal. Sales is fun and easy for me. So every change I've ever made in my career started with a single card, going back to when I was 14 years old. And is, that, is the card important? What's the difference between a, a written goal and an unwritten goal? Well, an unwritten goal is rolling around inside your head, and you may or may not think about it. But the moment the ink dries, what you want wants you. There's the, it's the magic of the quantified objective. When you write it down and you look at it, and as Earl Nightingale said, and imagine it. Right, it's the strangest secret in the world. We become what we think about. So, you we move towards that, and then what what ends up happening is if you have the what and the why, the how is going to come. The how comes in the form of an aha. The hair stands up on your arm. You you get a hunch. You know, you make a phone call. Uh, just odd, weird little things that start happening, but they they happen because it's a chain reaction. It's an effect. The cause is the goal. 
And so not just necessarily having it written down, which it does sound like it sort of helps manifest, but also having it present, being able to look at it, that you think that's kind of vital to actually sticking to it and being able to, like you said, you're, you were looking at it in your, in your van every day. Oh, absolutely. You know, when I, when I decided to write a book, I wrote down, write a book. That was the goal. It was a terrible goal in terms of structure, but I went ahead and did that. And then, I kid you not, six months later, the University of Washington contacted me and paid me three grand to write a book called Effective Communication. And nine people read it. No, wait, 10, my mother. And then I realized, oh, I didn't want to write a book. Oh, and I won an award for academic excellence, but nobody read it, right? So I realized I didn't want to write a book. I wanted to write a best-selling book. So I wrote that as the goal. And then over the next six months, I started researching what makes best-selling books. And abracadabra, which, by the way, is an Armenian term that says I, I say it and I create it. That's what abracadabra means. <laughs> And then there were six things that best-selling books all had in common. So I, I made sure my next book had those six things. And Freedom from Fear was born. Now, you don't sell 100,000 copies of a book, you know, without doing something different. But, you know, first you work on the goal, then the goal works on you. Yeah, that's great. Well, that'll do it for today's episode. As always, visit egie.org slash podcast, find this episode, an archive of previous episodes, the online form to submit your questions for our mailbag segment, links to the podcast on Apple and Google Play app, and a link to the latest EGIA snapshot survey. For more information about EGIA membership, visit www.egia.org slash join. I'm going to repeat that, www.egia.org slash join. I'm Mark Madison. Thanks for letting me play in your sandbox. I'll see you next time.